0: It just so happens that even if none of the technical malfunctions had happened, the overall audience for that interview still wasn't as big as the audience that DeSantis was going to get when he went on Fox News later that night. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's
1: podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly. It's Monday, Media Monday, May 29th. Happy Memorial Day. And I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, my fearless partner in the media sphere. And we're going to break down the Ron DeSantis disaster with Elon Musk and David Sachs on Twitter. What was worse here? The media performance with the political advice. And is there any path forward that's plausible? I really don't know if there is. And then Dylan and I get into our own turf and talk a little bit about Semaphore's latest fundraise and... Some bad vibes coming out of The Messenger, Jimmy Finkelstein's third act play. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers of the Beam. This episode is brought to you by Shopify Happy May 29th. Happy Memorial Day to those who celebrate. I'm here with Dylan Byers. We're the Peter Hamby Understudy crew back at it for another week (laughs) on Media Monday. Dylan, there's a lot to talk about, even though we're beginning media summer, which I know we we both have feelings about. But before we get to some news in in digital media, I think we can't help ourselves but pause for a moment at the events of the DeSantis of the disaster. I just want to get your your top line view on this David Sachs, Elon Musk, Ron DeSantis uh, nightmare that occurred on Twitter the other night. And I want to hear a bit about... (laughs) what you presage when it comes to Tucker and the Ben Shapiro guys going there. Is, is Twitter going to become this alt Fox news? I don't know, man. I, I have some thoughts too, but lead me through your instant reactions, please.
0: Yeah. You know, so this is, uh, eagle eyed observers of my column, at least might've noticed that, uh, I've been sort of in and out a little bit last week, but, um, so I approached the uh, the disaster as it as it was hashtagged, sort of from the farthest reaches of the the blast radius, and then worked my way back in. And it really seemed overwhelming. And I think what it what it seemed to highlight to me is one: there never should have been such a <laughs> like the the media generally should not have built up. Uh, Ron DeSantis going to Twitter. As somehow evidence that we were witnessing a paradigm shift in terms of like who controlled the reins of of the Republican Party heading into this presidential election cycle, it just so happens that even if none of the technical malfunctions had happened, the overall audience for that interview still wasn't as big as the audience that Desantis was going to get when he went on Fox News later that night. But yes, I, I think there are like there are obvious growing pains here. And I think this is probably what happens when you <laughs> come in and if you're Elon Musk, when you come in and take over a company and fire a lot of people and don't really get the gears up and running to make sure that when your big moment comes, when your big exclusive interview with the presidential candidate comes, that everything is firing on all, all cylinders. And so for me, look, will Elon be fine? Of course. Will Twitter be fine? Of course. Will they they probably take steps to get things in place so they don't suffer through this embarrassment again? Of course. Does it hurt DeSantis? Maybe a little bit, but in the grand scheme of things, he's got a pretty big war chest. I think the person I was thinking about the most when when I saw this and the aftermath was was Tucker Carlson. And Mm -hmm. does Tucker feel like maybe I bet on the wrong horse? Again, like Twitter's fine and, and they can rebuild and everything will be okay. But you, you do sort of wonder if maybe we, we all of us collectively in seeing Tucker going over, Ben Shapiro putting his inventory over there, and then DeSantis, of course, giving this interview, if we were all a little too quick to think that somehow the Murdochs were in trouble and Fox News was no longer <laughs> the sort of kingpin in conservative media, I think that thesis was right insofar as things are becoming sort of weird and diffuse and there are all sorts of different platforms now. But really, like I think that day was obviously a blow for Twitter and 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 a win for Fox News, which they trumpeted quite quite loudly. I tend to hope that I'm not the reactive sort, but I, I have a
1: few observations that I want to share with you and, and our, our loyal listeners. To me, this was really, to, to quote uh, our friend Risa Heller, this was a Shonda. Like, this was, a, a I think, a, a total political media catastrophe, an unabated one, an unequivocal one on, on many levels. Uh, f- first of all, having just spent plenty of time at the absolutely uh, gorgeous Peter Hamby, Katie Warshaw wedding, which was chock-a-block with with political types, I walked away with the stunning observation of just how powerful of a political tool television remains, just how profoundly powerful for marketing, for get out the vote, for messaging, and etc. So, I know DeSantis has made endlessly clear that he wants to stick to sort of uh, MSM free environments and speak to his audience in the dark web and and work outside of the the, the untrustworthy media. But when it comes to politics, ever since that Nixon-Kennedy debate, television has been a profound medium and this was a, a huge missed opportunity. Second of all. Musk and Sachs proved themselves, not even from a technology standpoint, but just from a performative standpoint, to not quite recognize how how actually hard professional media is. You know, besides the the technical glitch, they were terrible. I mean, they were just profoundly terrible. Musk talked the entire time in that funny stammer that he has, and DeSantis could hardly get a a word in edgewise, I felt at least from the, you know, and Sachs self admittedly is a um, reputable podcaster, but wasn't able to reach that level in this medium. You know, we spoke a couple weeks ago about the Caitlin Collins town hall. Well, my God, I mean, Caitlin Collins did laps around these guys when it came to actually trying to have a, an important, interesting conversation. You know, Linda Iaccarino, the incoming CEO, was on Twitter talking about how this was a historical night, and and it, it really it really wasn't. I felt <laughs> listening to that after the fact, uh, after having you know uh, suffered through the um, unstaged delays, I felt like. I did when I heard Howard Dean scream, yeah, or when the Mookie Wilson ground ball went through Bill Buckner's legs, or when the Tribune Company released that trunk ad. It was just a gut-punching deflation. I thought, oh my God, this is actually such a terrible stumbling block out of the gate that it's going to be difficult to recover from. The third thought there, of course, which is a political one, and this is beyond my skis in some ways, is why aren't they listening to Jeff Rowe? And I know that I get a lot of personal criticism about what's perceived as a Jeff Rowe fascination here at Puck. But unquestionably, the DeSantis folks are listening to a very, very small inner circle of media advisors and are not channeling the many expert, well-compensated people that they brought to uh, add concentric circles to that inner circle, the, the many layers of the onion. And it just seemed to me that They forgot that media is, on some level, a people and relationships business, and they took a risk here in thinking that if they placated Elon Musk, it would pay off huge for them, but in response, Elon, we know, is not necessarily loyal to many people, and they've absolutely alienated the Fox cinematic universe. I think there's going to be a serious amount of hell to pay for this, and politics is a momentum game it really is mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a business that's set up without any revenue generation in mind right you you raise money and then you spend it and you hope that at the end of the day your candidate gets more votes or more electoral votes than the other one and i just think that they absolutely
0: deflated the balloon
1: so it's a real real gut punch
0: i do agree with you on all three points Points and particularly that they're there, it is so clear from the way that Fox News, like the sort of Schadenfreude that they put out there after this happened, so, you know, sort of like trumpeting, you know, if you actually want to see and hear DeSantis, you can come watch our show. Like they, <laughs> right. this is a personal thing, right? And we're sort of at the point. In media where the collect in, in television media where the collective audience is sort of so small and all of the rules seem to have been thrown out the window that you can sort it can sort of become personal and weaponized and that's just part of American politics right now. So I agree with you on that. I, I think the point that I'm most taken with is your second point, which is look having had a front row seat behind the curtain at both CNN and NBC and MSNBC. One thing you really begin to appreciate is how incredibly difficult it is, and how much manpower it takes to mm-hmm. make good television, right? Or even halfway decent television. And it, much like a, you know, a plane. People always tell you you're safe on a plane because if like one engine blows out, there's a backup engine, and if one thing goes wrong here, there's something else here. You think even about the the election episode of Succession where like when one touchscreen stops working, they have three backup touchscreens. Th- there are so many people and there is so much infrastructure in place that that is why it is so rare to see cable news really shit the bed from a sort of technical point of view. And DeSantis did take a risk here, not not just in terms of like going to musk instead of fox or anything like that but he took a risk in terms of going to something that is still a a product that is still very much being beta tested by the public And, and and he paid the price for that and you're right momentum in politics momentum it all of that stuff matters and no matter whose fault it is it it's it's really not a good look for DeSantis when he's already living in the shadow of trump to then be sort of like twiddling his thumbs for 20 minutes while while Elon and and Sachs try to figure that stuff out.
1: And and you're right to raise the point about the kind of tuckerology of all this, because if we've learned anything from media in the last 18 months, maybe two and a half years, it's that the companies that own their user data and that own the relationship have been the ones that succeeded. Netflix owns the end-to-end relationship. It either makes or licenses the content, it signs up its users, it takes their credit card payments directly, and it knows how to renew them, and so on and so forth. And it, as a result, despite some hurdles and, and uh, quarterly misses, it, its stock reflects that, and it's profitable. And then you take a look at, uh, by juxtaposition, Paramount Global, which was disintermediated. It, it produced its content through cable operators, and at the end of the day, it lost connection to its user. What surprises me about Tucker, is that he's jumping to a platform where he will not own his end user. Elon mm-hmm. Musk does. And if Tucker is confident in his ability to whip up an audience, which I, I don't think he is, because I, I imagine he would have uh, approached this much more patiently and and thoughtfully and, and from a sort of you know, financial perspective. But if he was confident that he'd be able to, to bring over a mass, a large audience, he would have found a way to do so on his own owned and operated pipes and uh, so I I think a lot of these guys who are creating favor with Elon are going to live to regret it those are famous last words yada yada I know uh, our (laughs) partner Bill Cohen says all the time but anyway Dylan let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about something more germane to our world digital media some news at Semaphore and The Messenger All right, welcome back, everyone. Dylan, a couple of interesting news nuggets last week. Semaphore, our friends Justin and Ben Smith, raised an additional 19 million to finish out their Series A. Uh, it seems like a, a safe financing, uh, SAFE, that is um, the acronym. And some more bad press for Jimmy Finkelstein and, and Richard Mad Dog Beckman. Uh, it's been a rough launch for the Messenger, the 50 million dollar capitalized, center right ish revamp of the daily mail would love to get your extemporaneous thoughts on uh this news whether you were surprised whether this was all predictable and whether you think the messenger is f- sort of fighting back quibby vibes
0: yeah, well, and, and I would be interested for your thoughts on this just because you're sort of, the, obviously, you know, we don't make any secret about it. We're, we're building our own media company over here. Mm-hmm. And you're much more in touch with how all of that works than I am. But one thing I do notice is just with Semaphore and The Messenger are two very different companies run by two very different people with two, I think, very different ideas in mind for what they want to be. But in both cases, I think I just balk at the amount of money that is being taken on or invested this quickly out of the gate. I mean, one thing that I'm learning in real time here with, with us is that is that we are building something that I think we're all really proud of, but we're building it slowly and carefully and methodically. And I just look at the uh, uh, semaphore, which I think was $25 million, taking taking another $19 million, And then you've got, I believe it's a, they're touting a $50 million investment in the messenger. And it just seems to me like, is that a sign of growth and optimism, or is that in its own way a red flag? And I and I'd be, to me, it seems like a red flag. But I'd be curious what you think of that.
1: Well, I think on the semaphore front, so they, they originally raised twenty five, and I think that they they gave back ten to the creditors uh, who are handling the FTX unwinding. But I share your view, and, I, and I've expressed this publicly, and I've, and certainly you know when Ben and I kibitz, which we do from time to time. I've noted it as well. That's a lot of money—thirty-four million dollars. It's substantially more than uh, than we raise. Not that that's uh, you know that has to be uh, a meaningful juxtaposition, but I often find that when you're starting a, a new media entity, you you want to establish product market fit before you raise the capital to scale. If you look back at you know recent success stories like The Athletic or the or Axios or Punchbowl. They started small and they operated on a kind of a, a patient capital standpoint, and then they 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 built iteratively. Semaphore created a very large team, and the challenge with that is simply: what if something doesn't work? And in a startup, it, it Something often doesn't, uh, and then you're you're left with a lot of fixed cost, and and um, you've already saddled yourself with the challenges of a big company, which is the, the difficulty in in pivoting. Where I think there's one critical difference between these two companies it, uh, beyond the the content. You know, I think Semaphore does something pretty right. cool. I think the messenger is sort of uh, in, in really early innings uh, here. I, I presume that uh, that Justin is a, um, a individual investor in Semaphore and, and is is a preferred stockholder rather than a a common stockholder. One gets the sense that Jimmy Finkelstein, and he acknowledged this to some degree in a conversation with our pal Joe Pompeo at Vanity Fair, he owns a lot of this. He put a lot of dough into this. And so he's in it. And I'm not saying that it's a vanity project. I'm just saying because he brought in additional money as well. But he's calling the shots, and he probably has, you know, he operates in a role that's much more of a chairman and CEO and majority in- investor position, which is challenging because you know you do want the best of a boardroom context, which is multiple voices and perspectives to make sure that the the company is, is governed accordingly. So I think that they're going to stay this course for a long time before they pivot. He already did take some notable um, walk-back positions, though. He said that that their launch is actually sort of a beta launch and that they're going to be doing more direct selling in the summer uh, in order to move beyond the inexpensive programmatic that doesn't seem like it's going to point them towards their $100 million revenue goal. But he did build a company with hundreds of people that... Came into market without any sense of whether they'd achieved product market fit, and that is just inherently risky. And that just yeah. may be also a decision one makes when they're in their seventies, a decision one makes when they've already bought and sold things for for tens of millions of dollars. And certainly when you know, um, you know, Jimmy was born in the Carlisle, he's still hanging out in the Carlisle. So uh, <laughs> risk looks very different to him. But it's not an iterative approach, and yet he doesn't have uh, uh, aggrieved investors who can necessarily pull him off of it. This is the
0: ship, and he's the captain. <laughs> right. Look, I never, in sort of channeling the, I think, the sort of widespread sentiments that I hear that are that are quite critical and almost mocking at times of The Messenger, I don't mean any disrespect to Jimmy Finkelstein. He's, he's been around. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot. Um, and he sold the Hill. I just... There are so many aspects of this that just seem delusional to me. And I, you know, I've, I've like written in the past about how and I think we've spoken in the past about how so much of this copy doesn't need to exist. It's like the 30th version of an article 29 other sure. people have written. You've seen at least three editors walk away for that very reason, because that's not in, in their eyes. That's not journalism. It's not what they want to be doing. And again, I feel like it, we're a matter of months away from AI being able to write this copy for them. So again, it just goes back to why so much investment? Why do you need so many people? And then even you know, uh, Joshua Benton at Neiman Lab has sort of had a running his, his Twitter Oof, feed has just been a running catalog of like everything that is going wrong with the messenger. And and to me, the most insightful thing he pointed out from that interview with with Joe Pompeo was he think, when, when he's like, how are you going to reach 100 million people? He says, well, you know, we had 120 million visitors on average a month at the Hill. And Joshua Ben's like, you didn't have 120 million. Your your own site claims you had something like 31 million. So yeah. I, I just wonder if maybe Jimmy has reached a point in his life when he can dream big and invest big uh, with his own capital and maybe not, concern himself so much with the fine details of what that's all going to look like. And I don't, uh, beta test, fine, pivot, fine. I just, I don't know. I, I think it's too embarrassing t- too quickly out of the gate for this to ever really catch on as a real force in American media. But again, I, I don't, perhaps I'm wrong. Well, the good news about coming from the Jimmy Finkelstein stock is that if
1: when trouble comes, if it comes, I bet he'll have enough friends who can help him find a, a face-saving off-ramp. That's usually how these things operate. Uh, nothing is fair, Dylan. The world is not a meritocracy, <laughs> uh, but I'm with you that it, it does seem like uh, they look when creating this this concept that they look backwards rather than forwards. Most most vectors suggest that the future is about engagement, long-term engagement hurtling the AI curve doing what machines will never be able to and establishing direct relationships between creators and, and audiences and getting people to pay on a recurring basis and then multiple times um, but as you said before and we will say it again, uh, we boot for these guys because we're all trying to figure it out together and, and Jimmy could have spent the rest of his days at the Palm Beach bath and tennis if he wanted to and and um, good for him that he's trying to figure it out on the, on the shores of the next Frontier of digital media. So God love your brother. Anyway, Dylan, <laughs> I know you had a great holiday. I can't wait to see you in the Slack. Thanks for taking some time out to chat. And uh, we'll remind Peter when he gets back how much he owes us. <laughs> All right. Thank you, John.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance.